So before we get started, I owe you a little bit of a disclaimer in two parts. The first is that I had a mean headache while we recorded this, and it shows. I was even more discombobulated than normal. It was it, it wasn't fun. Second part is we had some audio issues up front. I had forgotten to bring my normal microphone, so we just had to kind of grab whatever the church had lying around. And the first few minutes aren't pretty, and you'll hear it. And eventually, Bradley and I just start passing off a mic. <laughs> it's super awkward. So keeping all of that in mind, there's your disclaimer. Enjoy the show. Soxology podcast. We explore popular practices, songs, and ideas in the modern church world in the light of Sola Scriptura and Toto Scriptura. I'm Cody Fields, president of Westminster Effects. Go buy stuff for your guitar at WestminsterEffects.com and join the discussion in the Westminster Effects Toxology podcast lounge on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe and comment on all the platforms. Just go follow us Facebook, Instagram, etc. And review the show. Give us five stars, even if you don't mean it. I'm going to apologize for my audio quality, at least on our end. Do you hear that, Bradley? Yes. Yes. So we had to uh, scramble for mics because my genius self left them at home when they normally live here in Bradley's office. So you just heard him. Uh, joining me in person, we have... Bradley Cox, pastor at Resurrection Church, Greer, South Carolina, currently building my biceps with this massive mic that I'm holding right now. <laughs> Yeah, we mooched uh, the church's SM7B, which is a fantastic mic, and you sound better than you've ever sounded, but it is heavy, and we don't have a boom stand for it. Uh, But via the interwebs, with a boom stand for his microphone, we have... Also an SM7B boosted from the church is John Ross, Westminster FX artist, Augsburgian Christian, and uh, not fired, just on vacation for like three weeks Attaboy. from Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. When, you, when you told me you were off for three weeks, I was like, so did you get canned and you're between jobs nope. or what? Nah, no, nah, they, they, they like me. Now, my company gives a kind of sabbatical R&R benefit, and I didn't take it three and a half years ago when I earned it. And I was like, you know what? It's flipping time. It's so, about time. We don't, ha- I mean, yeah, you know, we're going to take a, a small trip as a family, um, you know, over the fall break weekend, uh, but, you know, we're not doing anything, uh, you know, extravagant. I'm just able to get things done that I want to do without having to worry about getting hit on Slack or, hey, can you pop in this call or getting paged for this, that, and the other thing. Um, it's, uh, it's quite nice. I was able to sit on the porch this morning and drink my coffee out of a mug emblazoned with my employer's logo, ironically enough. So you still um, can't get away from it. No, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't checking Slack. Uh, you know, my, uh, of course, the first day of, like, time away, which I never take time off. Like, it's just, you know, unless it's for a trip or a funeral or a birth or something, I don't, I just don't take time off. Um, I mean, of course, I flex out time for like kids doctor's appointments and uh, all of those important things and swim meets but i never take time off for me uh so i get kind of a guilt complex and of course the first day i take time off for me what does my lone colleague have to do he has to rebuild our entire 
development and test uh, database cluster. Sounds um, like you so... picked a great time to bail on everybody. Yeah. No. So shall we uh, get into our main topic today? Mayhaps. Sure. So, God, this audio quality. Kyle Daly is going to ream me out on Facebook Messenger in, what, 48 hours when this drops. <laughs> and I, t- I tell you what, that is one thing I don't miss from being the uh, the illustrious former producer of right. this brilliant program. Now we let now you just let some three hundred dollar piece of black plastic be your producer. Correct. But you know what? Their feelings don't get hurt uh, when someone complains. That's true. Uh, it's just man, I remember I remember back in the day manually setting all those compression settings and everything, and oh, I don't miss it. Not at all. So. There's a new documentary either out or coming out. I don't remember, but it's just called Cessationist, and it builds a biblical, from their perspective, a biblical uh, case for cessationism, being that at least certain spiritual giftings have are not in operation anymore. Uh, generally, from the Reform perspective, I believe Justin Peters and the like are involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is this is a thing where, you know, Bradley, our church being being in the reformed camp, we come down on, uh, in a more unique position than most Westminster guys, most most sixteen eighty nine guys is we're we're continuationists. Yep. And we don't apologize for it. I, we ask questions about it, mm-hmm. and I think there's been some redefinition of terms over time here. Being that you came out of a Pentecostal background, right? Right. Uh, and then, John, you being Lutheran, the way that you described it was continuationist but incredibly skeptical, which yeah. sounds very Lutheran of yourself. Yeah, I think the official position, well, I don't know if it's written this way, but the, the summary of the official position is open but cautious. Sure, sure. Which, I mean, kind of takes uh, a somewhat Pauline uh, approach to it uh you know we test all things we test all things by scripture uh you know as the norm normata to see if uh, if they are so Uh, but that said not a whole lot of uh you know speaking in tongues going on at the old at the old lutheran potluck it's a little bit of german every now and then right but yeah so i I think i think (laughs) i think when we approach this i think what we need to do is put the best possible spin on what the cessationist crowd is trying to do, which I think they're trying to correct some of the, whether you want to call it abuses or misunderstandings of certain spiritual gifts by certain parties in the Pentecostal charismatic world, where they've maybe taken some things and gone too far. (laughs) It's just one of those days, isn't it? And they want to provide a biblical buffer against abuses. And we would we would applaud that, right? I think. Are, are sure. we all on board with that? Yeah, yeah definitely. Like, yeah, definitely. So, sorry for the fart noises. It's not me. John's the only <laughs> one drinking coffee. Oh, well, no, Bradley's drinking coffee, too. But uh, yeah, by, the, by the way, by the way, my coffee, coffee hold up. Drinking coffee out of an all seven days podcast mug. Yeah, I bring that now, back, Padre. Now I I have a Westminster Effects just Westminster Effects tin mug, which was which was nice. Gets a bit hot on the old lips, uh, 
But where's the where's the Doxology podcast mug? Is it because the name the name's too long? The Westminster Effects Doxology podcast can't fit around the whole thing. Oh, we'll get there. We'll make one. All right, I can All do right. that. Uh, anyway, so best possible spin. Uh, also understand. You might use this mic. Yeah, we're just yeah, gonna make things you, extra those, awkward. Those of you who uh, who can't see the uh, the the video here, uh, I mean, every every five seconds, Cody just gets more disappointed at what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's quite yeah. it's quite fun. But to now watch I sound awesome. Into madness, I sound amazing at this point. So at this point, Kyle Daly can't give me any more crap for things sounding bad. So that That's said. Uh, I guess one of the interesting things with this conversation is technically Pentecostals aren't continuationists. They are restorationists. Uh, mm-hmm. They, The initial Pentecostal revivalists and such, such as, such as Amy Simple McPherson, believed that certain spiritual giftings had been lost for some time and God was restoring them. That's why another of the reasons that they're more susceptible to things like the New Apostolic Reformation. But... Again, Pentecostals, we're not condemning them to the pits of hell. It's we, we disagree on some definitions, and right, and we'll move on from there. Uh, Bradley, I guess this, this might be a good time for some of your background to come in since you were raised Pentecostal. You kind of came out of that movement. Uh, what were some of the things that maybe you experienced coming up, and how did those, uh, how did your theological stances start to shift? when you started to come out? Well, I mean, I grew up in the Pentecostal holiness uh, tradition, uh, which <clears throat> was an outgrowth of um, Wesleyan Methodist um, and then was kind of, you know, I guess swept up in the, you know, Pentecostal Azusa Street restorationist mm-hmm. movement, right? And then over the years, it's, um, I don't know, it's kind of just gathered uh, as it's journeyed along. It's gathered up the different parts and pieces and, and streams and uh, offshoots uh, that have come about. You know, when you think about the charismatic renewal, um, you know, even the Jesus movement and um, Vineyard, uh, and then, you know, as well as the, you know, prosperity word of faith, you know, word of faith, um, it is, is wholly Pentecostal, uh, in terms of its, in, you know, tradition, um, um, it's, it's based largely in, you know, a thought about, um, you know, obviously God continuing to speak. God continuing to do supernatural things, supernatural blessings. Um, um, and so, yeah, anyway, that, that's what I, I came out of. And, um, you know, experientially, the tradition that I grew up in was what you might call classical Pentecostal uh, tradition that, you know, has as, as its distinctive the third definite work of grace, uh, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial yeah. evidence of speaking in other tongues, which is a <clears throat> is based on a prescriptive interpretation of the Book of Acts. In that, in arguably most cases where there was a an you know 
a manifestation of the Spirit. It was accompanied with speaking in other tongues. Think of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius' house, etc. So, yeah, that's what I grew up in, and I think the the more that I, I read the Scripture and more the more I came to understand Scripture, I realized, you know, some very basic things that I just wasn't taught because I grew up in the tradition, and I wasn't taught that you you cannot make acts prescriptive. It's descriptive. Um, this is what happened. It's not necessarily what continues to happen in every case. Um, and then also studying first Corinthians, uh, Paul's words to the Corinthian church in chapters 12 to 14, um, in my mind, clearly, um, undermine or undercut classical Pentecostal doctrine. And so that's really how I came out of it. You know, that's, that's always kind of been my, my question, kind of like that, uh, um, that Andy gift from Parks and Rec is like, at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Uh, <laughs> um, how, how do they reconcile using something like tongues as the litmus test for baptism by the Holy Spirit, which, you know, of course, is its own separate thing? How do they reconcile that with you know Paul's discussion of those spiritual gifts and how not everyone is gifted in the same way and that's a cause for celebration not for you know contempt like how do how do they work there like do they do they just say uh oh, Paul doesn't know what he was talking about well no they it, they do what i think every denomination has done or continues to do on some level with something and that is uh, experience is privileged uh, over and above exegesis. Uh, they would not be that explicit about that. None of us are ex- as explicit about that sure. as we should be. Um, but it when when Azusa Street happened uh, and there were there was speaking in tongues. Uh, they my understanding historically is that they did what they should have done is they went to the scriptures to try to discover, okay, what is this? And one of the things they saw in the book of Acts is that, particularly in Acts chapter 2, is that people were hearing those in the upper room speak in their native language. And so they go, oh, this, this is an evangelistic tool. And so literally what they did was they sent missionaries to different parts of the world who did not understand the language, could not speak the languages of the people they were going to, and they would just try to speak in tongues to them. And lo and behold, they that didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> um, and and so you know, then what happens is okay. Well, they start to take scriptures like um, where where Paul talks about um, I pray in the spirit and I pray with understanding. Mm. You know, when I pray in the I spirit, my that. mind is unfruitful but my spirit is edified. And so that's where these notions about, and I'm not entirely against this. I mean, we can talk about it if you want to personal prayer language, um, you know, um, tongues that, um, you know, aren't, aren't necessarily human language, uh, but might be, you know, an earthly language, I mean, but might be uh, heavenly language or just the language of the spirit. And, it edifies the individual believer. Um, but I think John, what happens is, and what I've experienced is that there are some really bad hermeneutics that are applied because of experience. 
And yeah. it's a very dangerous thing because um, when you, you you just look at Middle Eastern religions, um, Middle Eastern religions have their basis not in doctrine uh, or theology, but in self-authenticating experience. You mean I'm sorry. Yes, Eastern religions. I don't. What did I say? Middle Eastern. Oh yeah, Eastern religions. Sorry, <laughs> have their basis in self-authenticating experience. Mm. This is what happened. So it must, you know, that that right. gets privileged over and above what the actual exegesis would lead us to conclude. You know, here here's a here's an example. Um, in First Corinthians, um. I believe it's chapter 14. Paul talks about the fact that tongues, the gift of tongues, has no corporate benefit unless it is interpreted. Right. And um, so tongues and interpretation is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pillar of the tradition that I grew up in. The problem is, is that um, what I experienced, I think, I don't, I don't know that I ever experienced anything that I would think would be in line with what Paul is talking about when he talks about tongues and interpretation is that someone would stand up in a service and speak in tongues and then someone would interpret. And I think in every case, the interpretation was something to the effect of thus says the Lord. And if you pay attention to Paul's words in first Corinthians, what's clear is that tongue speech is God word language, not man word language. Uh, in other words, it's, you know, Paul says, if, if, unless the tongues are interpreted, how can we say amen to your thanksgiving? It, it's, it, it is, tongues are prayer, praise uh, language that's going toward God. It's not God speaking. And so um, when someone would speak in tongues, and if we put the best possible spin on it, Uh, let's say it was a genuine uh, move of the spirit there. Someone speaks in tongues and then someone else interprets and it sounds like prophecy. At best, there are two gifts there that are uh, two different gifts that are in operation. The tongues have not been interpreted uh, properly. If someone is saying things like thus says the Lord, you know, the color of the carpet should be green and not blue. Um, You know, that, that those are the kinds of things that just sort of get accepted uh, from an experiential standpoint without being scrutinized properly by the scriptures. Right. So effectively using your, like, not necessarily exclusively, but using experience to shape understanding of the text rather than using the text to shape your understanding of your experience. Exactly. Yeah, that and, tracks. And it, would seem, and it would seem that a lot of this necessarily rides on uh bad definitions as well uh like yes it's god word language w-a-r-d not word as in as in sentences and things but (laughs) in that same passage paul says tongues are a sign for unbelievers which would lend me to believe that he's talking about the prophecy in isaiah of people with foreign tongues are going to praise God instead of the Jews, which then would seem to me to tie into Romans 9, 10, and 11, that God would use these people using foreign tongues, foreign languages, 
to make the Jews jealous and then bring them into the kingdom ultimately. Am I tracking there or am I off base? Um, I, I, I don't think you're off base. Um, you know, I think that um, when, when Paul talks about them being a sign for the unbeliever um, and, and not for the believer, it, that's a confusing passage, I think. Sure. It, it, I think it requires some thought to try to track with what Paul is saying there. Um, and I, 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 I've talked about this, and I've, I've had roundtable discussions about this, and, and I think that at, at a, a very basic level, um, if an unbeliever is among the gathered saints and tongues are happening and interpreted um, properly and everyone's understanding and there's an amen, a collective amen, there's not confusion, I think you know that, that that's in the same context where Paul talks about an unbeliever coming in and saying, surely God is in this place, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And... I think that's what he's after there when he says that. Um, you know, he talks about tongues. The, the The tongue speaker is edified when he speaks, not necessarily the whole the whole group or the right. whole gathering of believers. Um, but I think with tongues and interpretation, um, I, I don't know. But what he's he might be talking about what you're talking about. I mean, that's a that's a broad biblical i don't think that's wrong i don't think that's off base but it might minimally be that um it it would be a sign and a wonder right for the unbeliever um to to identify that god is at work yeah you know the this is something that we don't see right in 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 the the lutheran side of the house um i've never even seen it outside the lutheran side of the house outside of you know videos and uh, i used to watch uh you know uh oh tbn no well i I used to watch benny hinn late night after the infomercials would turn off (laughs) just just for just for a giggle Uh, i mean nothing nothing says a Friday night, like going from the Showtime rotisserie oven right into some good old head slapping. Um, <laughs> but it, if if I recall, maybe it's not even recollection. It just seems to be that when we talk about tongues, or or any of the other, well, or uh, or any of the gifts, but it, right. in this case, tongues tongue specifically, there's almost two uses of it. Right? There's four, like those speaking in languages that are earthly languages that they do not know acts 211 you know the ilk right um, and then and then there's the one that edifies you know the uh that edifies the speaker edifies the prayer um and perhaps it's some sort of mashup or uh conflagration of of those two definitions because when um i mean if you if if i look at the kind of the lutheran understanding of of this and and it it is fair to say it's mine although it's never been taught this way um it just kind of happens because it doesn't we we don't want to um you know every first year uh like religion student will say don't put god in the box yeah yeah we don't we don't want to do that um but 
you know, like tongues and, and these spiritual gifts were largely, uh, you know, to help get the church started, right? Uh, the early church started, and since then, they've been progressively tapering off. We don't say they've stopped because we have no command saying to st- that they've stopped. We, uh, we acknowledge that they are, uh, they are within uh, you know, God's realm of, of possibility. Uh, but with the tongues thing in, in, in particular, it, it seems like we're talking two separate definitions, right? I mean, we have mm-hmm. we have the the tongues that no one can understand, and then we have the Acts two tongues that are the uh, foreign languages. You know, uh, and, and behold, we hear the the word of God being spoken in our own language. Right, and I think this this kind of gets to I've I've brought this up before, but it's been a minute. But I don't think the categories of cessationism, continuationism really get to the heart of the matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, one, you don't see in Scripture, like if we're being good biblicists, right, of a good sola scriptura is, you don't see something saying that uh, during the lifetime of the church in history, these things are going to stop. I I don't think you can make that case biblically. I do think you can make a case that certain things are more normative for the church of... You know, gifts of administration, right, or or gifts of teaching. You you have to have those. You do not have to have uh, a fourth or rather foretelling prophecy. You don't have to have tongues. You don't have to have words of knowledge in order to operate normally as a church. It, it, you're depending on the Spirit for your teaching and for your administration and for all of those things. And those are the things that make up a local body mm-hmm. other other things you know they're great and you thank god for them but you don't necessarily expect those things to happen sure in the day in day out uh bradley's got his bible open does he that's want to good. say something yeah that's that's a good thing for the pastor to have Preach, his bible preacher. open. <laughs> <clears throat> well, i think john touched on this and um well there's two things John said, one is that, um, you know, we don't have a command in scripture or a, 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 a clear and decisive statement in the Bible anywhere that certain gifts of the spirit have ceased. Right. That, that's just not there. Every argument, every argument that I've heard, um, for, you know, cessationism, um, there's a couple of problems I have with it. One is that I just don't see any exegesis that defends it. Sure. You know, I think the a lot of times they go to um, the end of 1 Corinthians 13 um, where Paul says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And and the cessation, this is, somebody can tell me if there's a another, um, you know, foundational biblical argument for cessationism than this, but is that the perfect mentioned in verse 10 is the Bible or the canon. When that comes, when that's complete, all these gifts like tongues and prophecy and what have you 
will cease. And I just think that's a bad reading of that text. I don't think that Paul's talking about the canon when he talks about that. I think he's talking about uh, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Uh, we will no longer need these things that um, are partial. Um, the other thing is that, you know, in, in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, but to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the basis upon which he launches into talking about spiritual gifts. Spiritual right. gifts are a manifestation, an unveiling, a revelation of the Spirit, right? That's, that's what every spiritual gift is. And mm-hmm. I think one of the mistakes that the church has made uh, in every tradition is the naturalization of certain spiritual gifts. Right. In other words, teaching is not a supernatural gift. Um, people might not say it that way, but that's how it's thought of. It's just that the teaching is what we need because we have the Bible, and so we need people who are gifted uh, pedagogically to stand up and you know teach the Scriptures to us. Right. Um, but every spiritual gift is a supernatural thing. Uh, it's a supernatural manifestation of the spirit i have a very real sense that when i stand up to teach that the spirit is at work in power i, uh, I mean i don't i don't think it's fair to de- to deny that you know at all like there's i mean few few thoughts right i mean there's there's obviously the teaching that we're all on board with of you know no one can can cry out jesus is lord except by the power of the spirit the spirit intercedes for us cries out abba father luther's view is that it is actually the spirit crying that even if it's in our own voice right that yeah. the spirit does that that intercession there's even in in some more lutheran scholasticism that the preaching now this isn't like the delivering a sermon preaching this is the the public proclamation of scripture the right. reading of scripture is the word of god you know it's not, I am reading the Word of God. It's the words that are coming out of my mouth is the Word of God, just like it is on the page, right? And so there's all of these things that the Spirit has to be involved in because we can't do it on our own. We, there's no no merit or worthiness in us, as the old hymnals would, would have us say. Right. Um, and so which, absolutely on- which power faucets has God decided to turn off? That's my question. It, it, you know, it, it, if, if the one for teaching and preaching, uh, it, are, are, if those are still on, and the gifts of administration, which I don't think is somebody's good at organizing a file drawer. You know, I think Barnabas, <laughs> I think Barnabas had the gift of administration. He was a dot connector. When he goes, he gets sent to Antioch because people are getting saved in Antioch. Mm-hmm. He gets there and he goes, you know what? We need a gifted teacher here. Let me go get Paul. Even though Paul, people were still a little bit scared of Paul at the time, he goes and gets Paul and brings him to Antioch. And then it's from Antioch that the first missionary journey launches. I think that's a gift of administration, the connecting of dots. So if those power faucets are still on, make me a biblical case that tongues, prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, that those power faucets have been turned off by God. I just don't see it in Scripture. I'm willing to acknowledge that the Pentecostal charismatic movement has hijacked um, our 
it, it's it's hijacked our confidence in the Lord to move in those ways. And like you said, John, uh, there there are many churches and many church traditions that would not declare themselves to be cessationists, but they're highly skeptical because of what we've seen in the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And I would grant you that these there are certain gifts that are difficult to flesh out in the life of a local church, at least in certain parts of the world. Uh, but in other parts of the world, like there are, you talk to missionaries. I've talked to them. You know, I sat down uh, with um, a missionary from India years ago and was asking him, like, you know, in, in a place like India, um, how is it that the gospel is breaking through and, and penetrating uh, in places where, you know, people are so steeped in Hinduism? And, you know, he started to talk to me about spiritual gifts and, and ways in which God was miraculously breaking down um, barriers and strongholds and, and, you know, bringing people to, to saving faith um, in, in spite of the fact that they're probably going to lose their job, they might be excommunicated from their family or their village and, and might endure persecution. They're coming to faith because God's moving in supernatural ways. And many of those supernatural ways in, in gifts of prophecy or, or tongues or uh, dare we even go here, uh, the casting out of demons. Um, you know, It's really hard to read the Gospels and conclude that Jesus's kingdom agenda um, includes healing of the sick and casting out demons. I mean, that was how he commissioned them to go. And you can, you can say, like John said earlier, that you know this was God's sovereign, strategic way of getting the church off the ground. Maybe I just struggle with the fact that there's no there's no biblical basis to say that that was a um. I don't know. It almost feels dispensational to me. Ooh, shots fired. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I mean, no offense yeah. to anybody no, no, listening here, no. but it feels a little dispensational to me to, to make that case that, okay. Yeah, where he did something at one point, and now he does something different rather than, yeah, you're you're right. And I don't, I don't think that, uh, uh, I don't think that's unfair. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think Luther, you know, uh, or or uh, uh, other other folks in in kind of my area of scholasticism would necessarily agree with that. But it sure smells that way. I think what is really going on is like folks like myself from my tr- my tradition are trying to reconcile the understanding and the firm belief that you know that God. All the sovereign, but yet God is unchanging. You know, He is who He is. Uh, trying to reconcile that with the promises of spiritual gifts, the scriptural evidence of them, the lack of command saying, don't do this no more, and the fact that we've never seen it outside of yeah. seeing from the outside in to some of these organizations who have hijacked it, right? And so when we see something that might very well be legitimate, we are skeptical to a fault. Where like, boy, I really want to celebrate with you 
for all of these people in Mumbai who have just come to know the gospel. But, dang, I wish you wouldn't have done that tongue thing. Because now, <laughs> because now I think you've yep. made it all up. Boy, right. I wish you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have healed that guy. Because now I'm thinking you've got a plant in the audience with an earpiece, Peter Popov style. Like, all of these these false prophets, these false apostles, these false healers have done an inordinate amount of disservice to the church at large view, to the fact that when I see something, my first thing is, no, nah, it can't be right. I've never seen it myself. And when I think about it, and I actually think about that viewpoint and that mindset, I'm like, that's not right. That's not what I believe. And then I start wondering, why? haven't I seen it? Mm -hmm. You know, why? And yeah, I can, I can put on my Pharisee hat. And it's like, because I don't need to, you know, I've, you know, I've been baptized. I've dined at the table of the Lord. I don't need signs and wonders to tell me who my savior is. But out of that mindset, no doubt the work of, uh, uh, of the fallen man inside of me and Satan using it as his instrument forces me to discount what other people may very legitimately be experiencing as a manifestation of the spirit. I don't know what to do there. I'm going to say something that is somewhat philosophical, but I think that it might be, and I'm open to being questioned about this. It might be in line with, the sentiment that Paul seems to have in first Corinthians 12 to 14. Um, not a great analogy, but I, I, I live um, in a neighborhood a subdivision and my house sits on a half an acre lot, um, which is, you know, for this area, that's a, a little bit larger than, maybe most lots, not much, you know, most lots around here in subdivisions might be a quarter of an acre. Um, here in my neighborhood, I have a half an acre, so it's a little bit bigger, but you know what? I don't need a four wheeler. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't to, to, you know, don't canvas the, yeah, to, to canvas the landscape of my little plot. I don't need a four-wheeler. Um, I don't need a tractor to cut my grass, okay? Um, Paul says in chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he goes on to talk about how prophecy is a greater gift when the saints are gathered because it doesn't require interpretation. In other words, it seems that the Spirit moves in ways that are going to be of most benefit to the believers and to the, the, the mission and the participation with Jesus that those believers are engaged in, in their context. That seems to be a sin. Is that fair? Uh, so, um, in, in our context, um, in this part of the world, um, I get sick, I go to the doctor and there's just a ton of, you know, medical technology, medicine, what have you, that I'm able to, recover from most any illness that I would face. Doesn't mean that I shouldn't rely on the Lord for healing or pray for healing. I think we should and we can. Uh, but I didn't grow up in a day like my mother did where, you know, her 
father, my grandfather, was pastoring in the West Virginia mountains in the in the 50s and 60s, and they didn't have money, and they didn't have access to doctors. And when one of the kids got sick, you know what they did? Of the seven kids that were in the household, they prayed, right? When somebody got the flu, they prayed, Jesus, be merciful. We need you. We can't get to the doctor. We don't have the money to pay the doctor if we could get there. And my mother will sit here and tell you that there were many occasions where when her father prayed over one of the kids when they were sick that there was instantaneous recovery. I, I don't discount that one bit. Now, when I think of Peter Popoff and I think of Benny Hinn and I see these, um, these you know, manipulators and schemers that have come you know, up through the ranks, yeah, that does cause my skepticism to go up. But um, what I don't want to do is I don't want to close my mind to the good gifts of the Lord and the work of the Spirit and um, the mercy of God to empower his people in whatever situation they might find themselves in. You know, when I do ministry week in and week out in this local church, it is right for me to lean in for the gift of teaching. Um, And I would even argue the gift of prophecy. I stood on the front row this past Sunday morning um, and I learned this from John Piper, all you reformed, uh, people out there is that I prayed for the, not only the gift of teaching, but the gift of prophecy as I teach that I would speak as it were the oracles of God, uh, as I opened the text to, for my people, I think those are the right gifts for me to lean into. Um, but I don't want to close myself off that if I'm in a context where I need, um, I need a supernatural word of wisdom or a word of knowledge in order to participate with Jesus in the way that I think that, um, um, you know, he's leading me to, to participate with him that I'm, I'm like, Oh, okay. Well the, the, no, those gifts have stopped. And, and especially when there's just no argument in scripture, uh, to, to base that conclusion on, I think we just need to be open to the spirit and and let him work in the ways that he wants to work and not let the Pentecostal charismatic movement and all of its all of its um, misguided flourish you know rob us um, from having faith that the Lord might want to work in those ways in whatever context that we have you know I may have to just adopt the mindset of uh, Lutheranism although faithful is just kind of boring sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you know I I feel I feel bad about it not only because it's one of the new Star Wars movies and you know whatever take your pick but uh the line that uh so Han Solo says in Force Awakens it's true all of it <laughs> <laughs> oh let's go to the inquisition real quick This is the Inquisition, where you ask us questions, we answer them on the fly, which really isn't different than the rest of the show. You submit those questions via a weekly post in the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge, and none of them, well, it's really going to be one question, but it's not about cessationism and continuationism today. That's already been talked about ad nauseum. (laughs) But if you want to get Bradley rolling... Let's talk about continuation of it, continuationism and cessationism. So it's kind of a uh, 
combination question. We have Brian Morris and Glenn Head. Brian asks, what's the line of calling someone a pastor when they no longer serve in that role? Is it once always a, once a pastor, always a pastor? Or is this move your feet, lose your seat? Mm. Uh, Glenn Head asks, how does a church assist its former pastor to assimilate back into the congregation after retiring or stepping down? I think those are related questions. So, yeah. fellers. I, I think this is one of the one of the situations where my tradition and how the Lutheran Church and and others uh, handle the role of, of pastor um, may differ. I don't I don't know. Uh, not necessarily differ from from yours, uh, per, perhaps others. Um, I uh, I mean we we never in general, never stop talking, never stop saying, calling someone pastor, right? Like we would gather every year with my, the pastor that baptized me, that married my parents, that married my wife and I. Uh, but like when I was, even when I was a kid, like he, he was retired for a long time and he was always pastor raw. Um, when I got to college, I noticed that the professors who all had their masters of divinity, uh, which is in uh, in in the Lutheran realm of things, at least that is the degree that one traditionally gets by going uh, to uh, post baccalaureate education at one of our seminaries. You get your MDiv, and we would refer to them uh, as either pastor or professor. I'd call them reverend because that's what's in front, um, and that's just kind of how I roll. But yeah, I'd be really interested to hear uh, how how that works in in other parts of uh, Christendom. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's important to note up front that I didn't note up front is I think these are more about people retiring or stepping down on good terms with the right. church. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't, you know, stepping down in disgrace or anything like that. Uh, we have, uh, he's not at our church anymore because he's moved, but we do have a pastor emeritus uh, mm-hmm. one pastor, Ernest Barr. I've never referred to him as Ernest. <laughs> I've only ever called him pastor Barr and I don't think I could call him anything else. And so when he, he semi retired and handed the reins over to Bradley, when Bradley showed up and then eventually fully retired, what five, six years ago at this point, or is it even, okay. So four years ago and Everybody just kept calling him Pastor Barr when he would show up for church. So uh, Bradley, speaking to that more, and again, we're handing off microphones because this is super awkward this week. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right to say that it, it's when when a pastor retires or steps down on good terms. I, I don't I don't see why we would cease to refer to them as still a shepherd, um, right. functioning in a shepherding kind of role within the church. I mean, that's what the term pastor means. And even when Pastor Barr retired, um, he, he kind of semi-retired and then fully retired, like Cody mentioned. But when he semi-retired, he still served in a very pastoral capacity here from 2006 all the way to 2019. He would visit the sick. He did some weddings. He did some funerals. He um, he would teach on Sunday mornings occasionally, um, led Bible studies and small groups in the church. He was very active uh, to be semi-retired. And so, um, I think there's, you know, Paul talks about, um, you know, honor those who labor, um, 
over you in the Lord, and those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. So I think if someone labors in preaching and teaching um, the gospel and then retires or steps aside on good terms, I think it's a good good thing to continue to honor them as a pastoral figure in the church, as a shepherding, uh, someone that we continue to look to and look up to and model and imitate. Like you know, Paul would say, imitate me and others like me. Uh, so if someone has served in the church um, and is still imitatable, I think they're worthy of, of the honor of title of pastor. So the, the second half of that question is, how does a church assist its former pastor to assimilate back into the congregation after retiring or stepping down or what have you? And I, honestly, I think that's going to depend entirely on the situation. Um, to my knowledge... Pastor Barr gave you the reins and never tried to take him back at all. It was, here you go, have fun. A- am I right on that? No, he told, like, one of the things that I've always said about Ernest Barr is that there's no guile in him. He he just had no agenda, and there was no, no, never any attempt to compete with me over attention or influence in the church. Um, and so therefore it was very, very easy for us to honor him and allow him to assimilate into the life of the church because he just wasn't clamoring for attention. Uh, he never asked us for anything and yet we, he's still on our payroll, even though he lives in North Carolina now, uh, is taking care of his wife who is, um, uh, who has Alzheimer's and, um, we, he's still on our payroll and he will be. Uh, until he goes to be with Jesus, so um, I I just think that there there's a there is a two there's a two way street there. I think uh, a retired pastor can assimilate into the life of the church where he pastored um, with someone else taking the lead role if there is um, if there's a good healthy culture of honor in the church where the church is honoring him and where he has the right kind of humility and deference in order to let the new pastor and elders lead the church without his, you know, without, without getting in there and, and muddying the waters, so to speak. You got anything, John? So I've, man, I've really only witnessed one retirement. <laughs> uh, I mean, in in my more kind of older years, right? Like not in in my youth. You know, we had uh, uh, oh, I, I oh, do I even remember his name? I called him Hawkeye because he looked like Adam Alda from Mash. Um, uh, yeah uh but he was so it went from pastor rawl and pastor rawl was at saint john in clinton and he retired from there and saint john was the the congregation that like it, it was the family congregation but uh my parents started going to trinity because it was closer to the house um and he after 
Pastor Hawkeye left, <laughs> um, <laughs> Pastor Rawl stepped up and started uh, helping uh, at, at Trinity, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the visitation pastor, right? The, the vacancy pastor. And uh, had, I believe, maybe even had a vicar under him for, for a while. Um, but Pastor Rawl, you know, his congregation was St. John. And so I, uh, he was, he was honored by, you know, he was teaching Bible studies and, and always still referred to as pastor and, and so on and so forth. And, and I always called him that myself. Um, but I don't remember the moment that he retired. Right. Um, I, pastor Brinkman from St. John retired, but he moved, he moved away, uh, to be closer to, to his kids. So that one, I, I didn't have any uh, any experience, and so the only one has been recently at Christ in Lincoln is Pastor Schnocky, who's been, I mean, it's it's been over twenty five years. I think it's almost it's probably over thirty at this point, uh, where Pastor Schnocky has has served the congregation as its director of ministries and its primary uh, pastor for the sanctuary services, and. He retired, but is still the primary pastor for the sanctuary services until uh, that call process is complete. But that's been going on for seemingly ever. Uh, hmm. So he's retired, but he's still doing at least the job the majority of the congregants have always seen him do. You know, because majority of the congregants aren't going to see him do the hospital visitations, right? Unless you're the one in the hospital, uh, you know, taking... Uh, communion to shut-ins unless you're a shut-in you mm-hmm. only really witnessed him doing or or even being the director of ministries unless you were a employee of the church or went to the congregational meetings um, so the congregation in mass had always seen him preach on sundays and teach a, and, and teach a, uh, uh, a bible study well he still does those things <laughs> Hmm. So from the, from the perspective of the congregation, it's only changed in in title, um, but he plans on being a member of you know of the congregation forever because all of his family are here. Um, yeah, and I don't think he'll ever not be called Pastor Schnaki. Uh, that is just a fun name to say as well. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I uh, so I've never seen what a retirement looks like. But to be fair. I, and I don't know if this is different, right? I don't know if this is different. And, uh, but folks tend to stick around. I mean, not only in, in the Midwest. I mean, in the Midwest, you keep, like, if you have a job, doesn't matter what it is, unless that job is burned to you, you're pretty faithful to that job. Like, right. in general, right? Um, like, I could probably be running a company somewhere if I, w- if, if I would have moved every two years like they say you're supposed to in the tech field, right? Mm-hmm. But I've been at the same place for almost 10 because they take care of me. That's, that's my, my, my duty, it almost feels like. Very similar with, with pastors. They tend to stay. Um, and I've only seen one that it was a, a a two that have have taken calls of a congregation that I was active in you know they they and they left that congregation for another place right um so and one's my current and one's my current one so yeah just not a lot of experience there 
So either way, normalize pastors retiring and sticking sticking around. Thus is decreed. And on that note, thanks for listening to the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast and suffering through audio problems with us. Go love God, love your neighbor, and make some music. We'll see you next time. You can't hear it. You seriously can't hear it. No, you have to turn on original audio. Well, it's going. It's from my end. Yeah, we just talked over the whole thing, and that's okay. My my '80s uh, guitar solo there. Yep.